Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we're here. Not just here in a church service, and not just here in a worship experience, but right here, right now, wherever we are, yes, physically in this auditorium or in a living room or study or somewhere around the world, but where we are in our journeys. And whatever our journey is, the great hunger of our soul is grace. We're at different points of acknowledging that, different postures in our humility before our need for grace. But what brings us together is that grace is our only hope. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the privilege of journeying with them. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the basis of your blood shed for us on the cross in our place and for me, I confess my need for you to come and ignite your word for our hearts, for our stories, for our journeys. And I ask this from the core of who I am, that you would deepen our amazement deepen our amazement of your grace in a way that not just enhances our religiosity, but in a way that fulfills our humanity to the glory of God as individuals and as a church gathered and as a church distributed. I ask this in the name of the giver and the author of grace. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Babette can cook. It's just three words, simple words, but they're not simplistic. There is a wealth and world of meaning behind them. Babette can cook is how a letter of introduction finished. A letter of introduction that a woman, a refugee from France who had arrived on a rainy night on the shores of a fjord in Norway. A woman who had this letter in her hand and gave it to someone who was not expecting her. And this letter of introduction described this woman's plight and said at the very end, yes, her name is Babette, and Babette can cook. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but first, let's take a quick flyby of, of where we are. 
If you're new to Northland, as, as Pete said, we're so glad you're, you're here. Maybe you came last week for the first time, or could be that you've been coming for a few weeks or a few decades, but bottom line, where we are in our journey together during this season is talking about living out our faith together. What does it mean to live our faith? We've been talking about knowing our faith. Now we're looking at what does it mean to live our faith together as a community? And there's so many nuances and aspects of that. And today we're going to go over a central ingredient to being able to live together in, in our faith journey in an authentic way that, that fulfills us, glorifies God, and also enables us to be distributed in an authentic, incredible way. And it's one word that's necessary to get. It's a five-letter word. We all know it, but it depends on where you are in your journey as to how you respond to it. Grace. What happens to me when I hear that word? What happens to you? Grace. Is it just a woman's name? Is it something you say before a meal? Is it the characteristic of a particular athlete? Is it a description of somebody's movement that they move in grace? It's used in so many arenas. And then you bring it into the church and we attach an adjective to it. It's the title of a famous hymn that you just sang. And the adjective is amazing. Some of you are trying to remember what, what an adjective is. So it was taking you back a bit. Amazing grace, but are we amazed? And the degree to which we answer that question has everything to do with how powerfully we'll be able to live our faith together, gathered and distributed. And sadly, too many religious communities know the word, but they don't know the experience. They've got the word in their religious vocabulary, but they don't have that word grace enveloped in their heart and understanding what it means. Bottom line, grace is God's extravagant, lavish propensity to bestow benefits on blessings on undeserving and unworthy people. Grace is God giving me not what I deserve, but what I need. Grace is him giving you, not what you deserve, but what you need. You hear those people say, well, I just want to get to heaven and get what's coming to me. Well, I'm not so sure that's a good posture to have. <laughs> but sadly, religious communities are known for being the opposite of grace giving. I had lunch with a friend of mine a few weeks ago. He shared something with me that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, and it made my heart sink. He was talking about his dad, and he said over the course of his journey, his dad had really been really standoffish at best, stiff-armed at most towards the church, towards any involvement in church. But he didn't know why until years later when my friend's aunt told him the story. So his father's sister told my friend this. She said, when your dad was junior, senior in high school, he was, he was a phenomenal preacher. He was a star quarterback, athlete, 
very articulate, great leader, had big dreams for the kingdom, wanted to be a pastor, a missionary. He was just fervent in his love for the gospel. And then our mother got breast cancer. It was an aggressive form and she died shockingly soon after they heard the news and at the visitation the night before the memorial service, this aunt told my friend, she said, your dad was sitting next to me and an elderly man from our church walked up to your dad and he looked at him very sternly and said, what sin in your life is so bad that God would do this to your mother? See, that's religiosity. Some of the meanest people that I've ever met are religious. Because religiosity has this, hey, I'll scratch your back, God, you scratch mine. And we live, religious people live under the illusion that they actually are getting God to be good to them by their religiosity and their behavior. When I heard that, after I got over the shock, I actually thought of several passages of Scripture, but one was 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul makes this exhortation. He says, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. You see, God's grace, the message of His grace comes into our midst. But do we receive it in vain or, or does the grace of God blossom according to how he intends for it to blossom? Or does it become just a religious word that we keep in our vocabulary to sound religious, to sound spiritual? Now, the context of that passage is all about giving grace away in the context of community. Verse 17 of chapter 5, right before that, talks about us being new creations and then God having reconciled us to himself and then him entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, you're Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through you. And then in that context, he said, please do not receive his grace in vain. In other words, don't let that message of grace stop with you. You guys ever heard the difference between a pipe and a bucket? Bucket. What goes into a bucket stays in a bucket and stagnates, ceases to be what it originally was. That's what happens to grace in religious communities that don't want to unpack God's grace, don't want to taste it for what it is. But pipes, men and women that are conduits who want to give grace to one another, they're becoming more and more amazed over grace. And the more amazed I become, the more I want to give it away. So Paul talks about grace throughout his epistles in Ephesians chapter, chapter 1. He starts his, his epistle. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Holy doesn't mean religious, means those who are set apart. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, you know how you typically read this, don't you? You know, those are, these are introductions to letters. Let's get to the real stuff. So this is how we typically read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people, and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop. And settle in on the first part of that second verse. Grace and peace. It's not just a polite thing to say. He's saying the more you get grace, the more you'll know peace. 
to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious what? Grace. It's the backdrop. This propensity God has to give us not what we deserve, but what we need, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished, lavished on us. I want you to remember that word. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. We're going to spend some time on verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. But I want to right now go ahead and walk you through three questions that come out of those three verses. And I want you to ask them individually, but may we ask them corporately as community. Here's question number one. Do we know the giver of grace? And question two. Do we understand the cost of grace? And question three. Do we grasp the extravagance of grace? So in verse six, do we know the giver of grace, this one through whom we receive this? In verse 7, do we understand how much grace costs? And then in the next verse, verse 8, do we really grasp the extravagance of grace? Now in that verse 8, he talks, he uses that word, I told you to pay attention to it, the word is lavish. We're going to come back to it, but I want you to get, it's a very unique Greek word, Powerful that talks about excessive, overflowing, abundant, over the top, get out of town. I think that's in, in there somewhere. And most religious people don't think of God lavishing us with grace. Lavish, extravagance, it's not a word that religious people get into, especially when it comes to God's posture towards us. We actually have the opposite view that if we can just get all our things together a little bit, maybe we can eke out some grace from God. Instead, this is saying, he backs up the truck, beep, 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 and just lavishes us with grace. Now to help us understand that, I'm going to come back to the story that I started just a moment ago. We're going to spend some time on it. And then we're going to go back to those three verses and those three questions. So have the three questions in the back of your mind. Do I know? Do I really know? Or do I think I know the giver of grace? Do I understand? Do I really understand the cost of grace? Do I, I grasp really the extravagance of grace? Now, that letter I mentioned to you was exchanged from a refugee to a couple of sisters on a rainy night in June of 1871. This happens in a short story written by 
a Danish author named Isak Dinesen. She also wrote Out of Africa, by the way. Wrote it back in the 50s. Babette's Feast is its name. The story doesn't start, though, in 1871. It starts back 1854, 1855, when these two sisters were much younger and being trained by their father, who was known as the dean. He was the dean of a religious sect, a very severe, strict, uh, almost suffocating religious sect, puritanical in all the negative senses of that term, legalistic. But all of the, the drabness of the sect, and we're told that they dressed in drab clothing and they did not enjoy laughter. They weren't given to parties or any type of celebration or outbursts or smiles. Did I mention it was a small sect? No wonder, huh? But the dean led it with an iron fist and his two daughters, Martine and Philippa, were beautiful. No matter how drab their clothing was, everybody could see they're beautiful. There was a Norwegian army officer who was visiting his aunt, who was a member of the sect. He met Martine, fell in love, tried to, to, to woo her, but she and her father stiff-armed. His name was Lawrence Lowenhelm, and he went off to a great military career. That was in 1854. 1855, a French opera singer visited what we now know as Oslo. Back then it was called Christiana, and he was doing concerts there and was exhausted and wanted holiday, and people counseled him to go to some of the fjords in Norway. So, and, and they said, Berlevog is one of the most beautiful. Go there. So he went there in this village of Berlevog. He's there on a Sunday morning. He's looking for something to do. Here's singing. He's an opera singer, goes, listens to them singing and heard Philippa sing. He said, I'd like to coach you. She, she began to take lessons from him, but began to discover very quickly that not only did he want her to become an opera singer in France, he also wanted her for his bride and she wanted nothing of it. Now we fast forward to that night in 1871 when Martine and Philippa are in the home, their father has since passed away. Now they're leading this religious sect. It's a knock on the door. They open the door and this woman is drenched before them and she holds out a letter. It's a letter of introduction. Written by Achille Papin, the French opera singer. The bearer of this letter, Madame Babette Herson has had to flee from Paris. Civil war has raged in our streets. French hands have shed French blood. Madame Hersant's husband and son have been shot. She herself was arrested and has narrowly escaped. She has lost all she possessed and dares not remain in France. A nephew of hers is cook to a boat bound for Christiana. And he has obtained shipping opportunity for his aunt. This is now her last sad resort. How she is to get from Christiana to Berlevag, I know not, but you will find that even in her misery, she has still got resourceful majesty, resourcefulness, majesty, and true fortitude, which will be demonstrated by the fact that she is standing before you now. And then he has a couple of paragraphs about missing Philippa and regretting he's not, she's not singing in the opera in Paris. And then, right before his closing, He's offering Babette to be taken in by them, but he says, 
almost matter-of-factly, almost by the way, he says three words. Babette can cook. Just wanted you to know. Well, these two sisters look at each other. They, want to, they don't want to take anyone in, but they feel like it's their duty to do so. And so after Babette collapses and sleeps through the night well into the next day, and she's awake, they say, we will take you in. And we could use some help, we guess, around the household and to help us with our uh, religious organization in terms of our community. It was only about, you know, 15 people by then. But they said, now, we're told that you can cook. We want to make sure you understand something. Any type of luxurious French food is not anything that we want to be a part of. It's sinful. Here's what we want you to do. And they relegated her to cooking what they wanted. Two of the dominant dishes were ale and bread soup and split cot. Yum, yum. Don't those sound good? She didn't, she didn't push back. She learned and she cooked them well. She became very resourceful in her, mar- in her marketing ability, going down to market and bargaining. For over a dozen years, she was faithful. In the summer of 1883, Babette received word, though she had been isolated from everyone for many years from France, A friend of hers had been renewing a French lottery ticket for her every year. And in the summer of 1883, she was informed by her friend that she had won 10,000 francs. That was a lot of money. It's enough to buy a house. She goes to the two sisters and informs them of that. And they say, well, will you be leaving? And she says, no, I would like to ask a favor. First, they said, what is it? She says, on December the 15th of this year, you are planning a celebration. (laughs) You have to put that in quotes for this crowd. Of the Dean's birthday. It's the 100th anniversary of his birthday. She says, I know you're planning to gather on that day. And for that day, I would like to prepare for you a meal to help you celebrate. She says, they hesitated. She says, have I ever asked anything of you before? I said, no. She says, I ask this. Let me cook for you. So they reluctantly agreed. In November, she headed up to Christiana to find her nephew and get him to head to Paris to purchase all the different supplies that she would need for this meal. In December, supplies start arriving in this little village on the shores of this fjord. And the sisters start getting really nervous. Boxes of fine china, cases of wine, live animals like a turtle and quails. And as it began to accumulate, the sisters started freaking out. And they go to their their other, by that time, they're about 10, 11 strong. And they say, we've done a terrible thing. They explained how Babette had offered to to cook them a meal and ask their permission. And they'd granted it. But now they're saying, all of this stuff is coming. There's evil stuff in those boxes. What do we do? And they finally agreed. You know what? She's already done all of this. So we will still gather for the dinner that Babette will cook for us, but we will not enjoy it. 
and we will not talk about it during the meal. No one will speak of it. So they said, okay. The evening of December, 5th, December 15th arrived, but instead of it being 10 people, including the two sisters, there was another addition last minute, and it was from an elderly woman who didn't get out much, lived on the outskirts of town, and she wanted to come in for this celebration. She had a nephew who was visiting her, and he was going to bring her. His name was General now, Lawrence Lowenhell. They asked permission, Babette said, of course. So now it's 12 people. They arrive at the house and they're told to wait in the outer room until everyone is there. And when everyone is there, they entered a room to see something that they had never before beheld in their lives. A table that was set with flowers and candles and fruits and china. It was extravagant, lavish, over the top. And they all sat down but remember, no one was going to say a word. And then this young man that Babette had hired began to bring in various courses and various wines, starting with Amontillado, a dry French sherry. They sip it, make grimaces, except for the general, who said, this is phenomenal. And by the way, they were all dressed in drab clothing, 11 of them, except for him. He had his crimson military uniform on. And then an 1860 Veuve Clicquot, one of the greatest champagnes of the century. One of them thought, is this lemonade? The general said, this is not lemonade. This is a 1960 Veuve Clicquot. And it was a 23-year-old champagne. And then a, an, an 1846 Claude de Javaud. All of these wines that are coming and the general is noticing and then these courses turtle soup, figs, pears, fruit. Blinis Dimidov, which is buck cake, wheats, and caviar, and sour cream. Everyone is not saying a word except for the general. You can't believe this meal. This is Berlevag. Where would such an exquisite table come from? And food and the, the main course arrived. Kion sarcophage, which is roasted quail and puff pastries. Covered in foie gras and truffle sauce. And when that happened, the general said, pushed his chair back and said, I have never had a meal like this except for once in my life when a dinner was given for me in my honor in Paris at the greatest restaurant in Paris and one of the greatest restaurants in all of Europe, the Café Anglais. 
It was the only other time I had Kion Sarkovage. I'd never heard of it before, and I've thought about it for years, and now I'm having it again. They don't say anything. And he keeps going, and finally, he can't stand it any longer. He stands up. This is the one non-religious guy in the room, by the way. I'd say they all stopped talking, but they weren't talking in the first place, so. But he raised a glass and he offered a toast, and this is what he said. Man, my friends, is frail and foolish. We have all of us been told, now you need to know that the general was dealing with his own life issues at this point. Very successful, had married one of the ladies in waiting for Queen Sophia's court. He had every achievement that he had wanted, but he was still empty. And he arrived that night totally oblivious to what was about to be lavished upon him. But he gets it. He says, we have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace, we imagine God's grace to be finite. That's what religious people do. He's only got a little bit of grace to give out. You better be good or else he's going to give it to somebody else. And when he does, he's going to dole it out. He's going to eke it out. He's going to give you just a little bit. We imagine divine grace to be finite. And for this reason, we tremble in our journeys. We cower. We don't live. And then he went on to say, but the moment comes when our eyes are opened. Remember when Paul says, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened? He says, but the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that God's grace is infinite. He says, this meal is a reminder of this. This is a meal of grace. We have received something that we do not deserve. And he went on to say, grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace, my brothers and sisters, makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. Grace takes us all to its bosom and proclaims general amnesty. And he sat down. A few of them began to get it. They began actually talking. They began talking about some of the food. And then they started talking about some of their rifts and their quarrels and be apologies began to be exchanged because as you can imagine, in a religious community like that, there was a lot of hurt. In fact, she writes, reticent and reserved old people received a gift that they were not expecting. Ears that for years had been almost deaf were opened to the gift. 
time itself had merged into eternity. It was to each of them blissful to have become as a small child. It was also a blessed joke to watch old brothers and sisters who had been taking themselves so seriously in this kind of celestial second childhood. They were starting to get grace for the first time in their religious journey. And we're told that they got up from the meal when it was over and they walked out into a fresh layer of snow in the courtyard. They joined hands in a circle and began to dance for the first time in their lives. Now the two sisters had, had witnessed all of this and when everyone was gone, they went back into the kitchen. You know, religious people aren't good at affirming and us, uh, God or other people. And they came back though and they wanted to tell Babette thank you. She was exhausted and spent and sitting on a chopping block. And they came in to thank her and, and she acknowledged their gratitude and then she revealed her secret. She says, I was the chef at the Cafe Anglais in Paris. They're blown away and then they say, well, will you be going back home now? She says, no. They said, why not? She says, because I can't afford to. I said, you can't afford to? You, you have 10,000 francs. She said, I spent it all on this meal. You spent 10,000 francs on one meal? She says, yes, that's what a dinner like this would cost at the Cafe Anglais. They said, then you're poor. She said, no, artists are never poor. Babette can cook. Three words, very simple, but not simplistic. I want you to picture those three words right here, Babette can cook. Can you see them? Can you see them right here? Okay. I'm going to put three other words right here. Jesus can redeem. See those? You see them? Babette can cook. Jesus can redeem. Babette, Jesus is the subject. The word can is a statement of ability. It's not necessarily experience, but it at least is a statement of ability. The word cook, there's cooking and then there's cooking. For him to say Babette can cook is an amazing statement, an understatement. And here's what comes in the gospel. You know how the sisters heard what Babette can cook is kind of a by the way. That's how religious people hear the statement Jesus can redeem. Oh yeah, whatever. Let's go back to those three questions. Do we know the giver of grace? When was it that you first heard that Jesus can redeem? Did you pass over that statement? Just like those sisters did? 
Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, maybe brand new, I don't know, but how many years have you been walking with Jesus? Do you really know him? They had been with Babette for 12 years, the chef at the Café Anglais, one of the greatest restaurants in all of Europe, and they were eating split cod and bread and ale soup. And it's because they were stiff-arming Babette and saying, this is all we want you to do. Do I know the giver of grace or do I keep him at arm's length? Romans chapter 5, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow? That's a lavish, excessive word. It's the same Greek word that we're going to talk about in a minute that says lavish, extravagant to the many. So Ephesians 1 verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Do we know who this one is? Do we know the giver of grace or would he see him as a religious mascot and keep him at a distance? These sisters kept Babette back there instead of letting her come out of the kitchen and, and do what she's wired to do and wanted to do for them. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. Have I boxed Jesus in like they boxed Babette in? He says, there's so much more I want to do. In terms of becoming my good luck charm, my cosmic vending machine, no. But in terms of addressing the core needs of my heart and my journey, what do you need? What do I need right now? He wants to give it lavishly. Do I know him? Am I walking intimately? Are we as a community? Second question, do we understand the cost of grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. It's not something that he's just capricious. It's through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Do you get that? He is able. Jesus, Babette can cook. Jesus can redeem. Redeem has not become religious. Redeem is to restore me to the original trajectory of my humanity. To restore me into walking with God in the way that I was intended to in the first place. To restore me in spite of all of my knuckleheadedness, my rebelliousness, my sin, my proclivity to say, I want to find satisfaction outside of your leadership, God. And that redemption cost him his life. Jesus came. God does not come to us and say, hey, let's just ignore your sin. Look the other way. He comes to us. And he says, I can't look the other way. I wouldn't be just. If I cease to be just, I'd cease to be God. Justice must be served, but I will pay the penalty. It's through his death on the cross, redemption by his blood. They sat at that meal and we're oblivious to how much it cost. May you and I never come to the table of grace again, not in realizing or ignoring how much it really costs. Do we get how much he loves us? She, 
She left her kitchen in Paris and came to this little hovel. Sound familiar? Philippians chapter 2, though being in very nature God, Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself of his independent use of his divine attributes and became obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. When I come to the table of grace, do I know the giver? Do I know what he's capable of? Am I letting him feast me at the core of who I am in abundant ways? Do I understand the cost? Here's the third question. Do I grasp the extravagance of that grace? Verse 8. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now I want you to look at that word lavished. The word is perisuo. It's from the root perisos. It means excessive, abundant, overflowing, over the top. Get a load of this. Knock the sides out and the roof off. Blow the doors out. Abundance, even superabundance. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it. Parasos is the Greek word there, to the full. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more. Guess what Greek word that is? The root, parasos. Immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Jesus, could you bring some split cod and bread nail soup, please? Romans 5, 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? Abundant, guess what the Greek word there is? Parasos. Extravagant. Lavish. Their idea of the gospel excluded extravagance. There was only one person at that table who got it that, that evening. Who was it? The non-religious guy. The one who knew the depth of his need, who wasn't living in an illusion of religiosity. He got grace. But then they began to once again. May God enable us to be a community that tastes grace and invites other people to take a seat. Distribute it all over the place. When I was writing my book, Life with a Capital L, there's a chapter on grace, because if I can't get grace, I'm not going to get this life that Jesus wants to lavish me with. And in that chapter, I tell the story of Babette. But I also wanted to include a poem that I had read from a woman years before, and I tracked her down. It took about a month. Her name was Nancy Spiegelberg. She finally returned my call. She's living in, a, in an assisted living facility up in the Midwest. And I said, Mrs. Spiegelberg, I, I, I just so appreciate you calling me back. And I told her about the book, and I told her about this chapter, and I said, I would like to use a poem that I read of yours that I found have stuck in a file of mine for years. Would you give me permission to use it? She says, young man, it'd be my honor. I said, I would be happy to remunerate you and pay you. She says, just send me a few copies of the book so I can give it to my family. 
So I did. And just a few months later, she died. I got a voicemail, still have it on my phone from her son. Here's the poem. Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup. I was uncertain in asking any, any drop of refreshment. God, I got some issues. I've been, this besetting sin, it's still there. This, this, this immense need, this whatever, the, this financial crisis, this emotional crisis, we're crawling across thinking, can we get God to eke out a little grace? She says, if only I had known you better, I'd have come running instead of crawling. And instead of a little cup, I would have come running with a bucket. May God give us the courage that is not rooted in pride, but humility and at the core of the gospel to embrace the giver of grace, to understand the cost of grace, but also to dance around the table of extravagant grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we've all got our stuff. And we all confess that tendency that we have to crawl up to your table with a little cup. I pray that today we'll come running and we'll come running with buckets. Those religious people around Babette's table, they had no room for extravagance when it comes to grace, yet that's what your grace is all about. So as we come to your table now, may we come with the immensity of our need knowing that we're coming to a table that has an immensity of grace to address every need we've got. I pray this in the name of the giver of extravagant grace, amen, amen. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come out. We're about to have a meal together. The night before Jesus gave his life, he took some bread and he broke it. Cost of grace. He says, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. They didn't quite understand what was happening. Days later they did. He then took some wine and he poured it. And he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. He says, I want you to regularly, as a community of grace, eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me. I'm gonna ask those of you who are serving us if you would excuse yourselves and let me walk the rest of you through what's about to happen. And if you're online, you can begin to get your communion elements now ready. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome at this table. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're welcome. But the scriptures say, become a genuine follower of Christ's first. It's just too precious. If you're not yet, become so now. There'll be people in the back who would love to pray with you. If not, this is an authentic community that says, hey, wait, process, wait till it's real. Wait till it's special. Come to him in humility. Parents, make sure that you're guiding your children. 
If you're not able to come up when somebody where they're standing and you want to just sit, raise your hand, somebody will serve you. But the rest of you, you can come up to where people are standing. Someone will have two cups. One will be dark liquid, one is, is lighter. The dark is wine, the lighter is grape juice. Take a piece of bread and dip it in one of those cups and you can partake right there or go back to your seat and partake. But we're going to give you space right now. Space to come not to a table of scarcity for your need, but a table of extravagant grace. So let's worship him. <laughs>